Well, good morning. I'm on. That's good. It's good to see everyone today. Uh, thank you. Uh, appreciate the worship team leading us well for James, uh, sharing the scripture, and uh, really drawing us into this worship time. Um, John Weddington, our lead pastor, and Halsey are on vacation. Uh, I don't know if you saw the little Facebook uh, post. Uh, I think their, their trip yesterday was off to a great adventure. The, the people that were taking them to get their rental car, their car got broken into it. Maybe one of you here. So apologize for a couple hundred dollars that was stolen. Uh, and then I don't think because of the hole in the window, they didn't have air conditioning to go get their car. And when they went to get their car, the car wasn't there. And so they're off to kind of a crazy adventure, but it sounds like they're doing well now. So uh, Uh, pray for them. Uh, This is a a great uh, season for them to be refreshed, and uh, they'll be gone also next Sunday, but James will be be sharing the scriptures with us, and so it'll be a a great week. Um, I uh, have enjoyed uh, the summer. I hope you all have. Uh, We have spent uh, some bit of time away. We had like three weeks uh, mission trip uh, for Susan and I, and and, uh, some of our kids were already on, on a trip. Uh, and then we came back, we're here for four days, and then we had a week of vacation up in New Mexico. But uh, for three of the weeks this summer, I was over 9,000 feet elevation and uh, enjoyed mid-70s, uh, which was quite nice. So, uh, but it's good to be back uh, in Houston. My complexion is much better with this humidity, so I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, but we have been in, in the midst of this series uh, in Psalms. Uh, that we, we did it last summer, and we're in it again this summer with a real call and a focus on prayer in the midst of it. But I love the psalm that uh, we are looking at uh, this morning. It's a Psalm 121. Uh, the psalms from 120 to 134, there are 15 psalms in there uh, that are often are called the songs of ascent. And uh, most scholars are pretty much in agreement that these psalms were written and used by Israel uh, three times a year specifically. Uh, They're all pretty short, they're easy to memorize, but there are three pilgrimages that the Israelites took every year from wherever they lived. They would come to Mount Zion and to Jerusalem to worship. And uh, most scholars believe that these uh, psalms were written for them and for this season. But there's such a beauty in them that that God has used them in incredible ways in the lives of people throughout uh, the centuries. And so today as we come again to these, uh, just a a beautiful uh, calling, I think, to the church. When you you think of the word pilgrimage, what kind of ideas come to mind? If you look it up uh, in, in the dictionary, it says a pilgrimage is a journey, especially a long one made to some sacred place as an act of religious devotion. From ancient times to the modern era, life with God has been viewed as a pilgrimage. Songs and stories and poems have been written that speak to this pilgrimage. And so when we come to this psalm today, it reminds us of the fact that we are on this pilgrimage. And for Susan and I, this summer, it's been been a rich time. Uh, For us specifically, uh, it's been a time where we went to Ethiopia and we spent uh, 10 days with some dear friends of ours. Uh, they're former uh, workers on the University of Houston campus. They had uh, partnered with us in doing some church planting. And so over a few years, we absolutely fell in love with them. And uh, we took them, I took them actually on my first trip to Ethiopia. They were with me. And I remember, so they're a young married couple. 
and they got so absolutely sick. Uh, kind of part of our story was I, I upgraded them to this really nice room that actually had leather furniture. And I mean, it probably cost me 10 extra dollars. But they're so, so in their sickness, they were able to actually to sit in comfort uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, the next trip they went on, uh, they got so sick again. I go, there's absolutely no way that they will ever end up uh, going overseas. The third trip they went over, Amanda's grandfather, who she was super close to, passed away, so she had to come back early. Uh, so again, the, the picture, they'd never be there, but God ended up calling them there, and being around them was just such a, an encouraging thing to see how God was using them in, in beautiful and significant ways in the lives of the Ethiopians around them. And this, absolutely seen Muslims come to faith, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox folks coming to faith uh, through their life, and, and watching how they love people what was absolutely uh, for Susan and I, just so refreshing, and, and it's been part of what God has been doing this summer, of just coming back and saying, what is it that we have given our lives to? You know, as we seek to love our family and lead our family, over these years, what is it that we have been investing in, and what is God calling us to do in this coming year? And, and it's pushed us to this place of just saying, God, we, we believe you're calling us to do some things that we have been doing, that we have been investing in, but it's going to call us to tweak maybe what we've been doing just recently, uh, and we don't know how you're going to do it. And so it's been leading us to this place of, of really coming to grips with this, this whole idea of trust. And so it's been fun reading scripture and reading books. It just seems like God keeps bringing this place that he's calling us to live this life of trust. And so then John gives me this passage that, uh, for us to share today. And it, again, it, it comes back to this idea of trust. You know, if a pilgrimage is this journey... And the Christian life is seen as this journey, a long journey made to a sacred place. This idea that we are on a journey to this end. What is that end? As I was thinking about that this week, I remember one of my favorite books over the last decade, maybe 15 years that I read, was a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And in this book, he begins to lay out this idea that he believes in this idea of Christian hedonism. And hedonism is this, obviously, it's living this life for happiness, for joy, and uh, it can be a very negative thing. If you are a hedonist and you're all about yourself and all about being what, me- what is good for you, it can be a negative thing. But he, he approaches more from a Christian standpoint. And, and he kind of describes it like this. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He's saying the chief end, what we are created for, the end that we're longing for, the thing that we're on this pilgrimage for, he says that ultimately the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Another way that he said it was, he said, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. This idea that God created us for happiness, God longs for us to have it, and where we find it is ultimately in him. And the way that we glorify him most is by enjoying him forever. So as we think about this pilgrimage that God calls us to, um, and we look about what the psalm is calling us to, it is calling us to that kind of relationship with God, that we understand that we are created to love him, to enjoy him. And in that, we glorify him the most. If you look with me in Psalm 121, um, 
you can imagine the Israelites as they're moving up this mountain. Now what we know about the Israelites is they're very much like us. They had good times and they had bad times. There were parts of their life that were full of blessing. There were parts of their life that have been continually a story of struggle. They had lived obediently to God and they would lived disobediently to God and they would experienced the discipline that comes through that. And as they're literally making this pilgrimage every year, they were walking up a mountain. If you look at the Dead Sea, uh, the Dead Sea was uh, over a thousand feet below sea level. Where Jerusalem was and, and the Mount Zion, it was literally at 2,500 feet. Uh, so all surrounding areas, you were down, and so they were walking up to the temple. They were walking up to the city of Jerusalem on these pilgrimages. And so as they're doing this, the, the, their story is articulated in these psalms. In Psalm 121, again, let's read that together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out. You're coming in. From this time forth, and forevermore. We can trust God, right? He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. And the question is, where does my help come from? Now, I don't know where you are in life, but I know for us in life, there are those times, and it's often, that we're in a desperate place where we need God to show up. The Israelites knew that. Where does their help come from? And he says, my help comes from the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord is a maker of heaven and earth. He is a creator. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. It gives us a picture. God is aware. He's not sleeping. He's not paying attention. He is present. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And again, for them, as they're marching and walking up this hill, they're tired. We did some hiking while we were in New Mexico, and while we were, some while we were in Ethiopia. And at that altitude, we know the, the challenge when you're out in the elements um, walking. And we, we, we took uh, one day while we were in New Mexico, we took this really strenuous hike, and it started raining in the midst of it. And we, it, got, it, started, it was pretty warm to start with, but it got cooler and cooler. And I, it was like a two-mile hike up, I can't remember, about 2,000 feet. So it was a pretty good hike. And we had this older guy that uh, he was just coming along on, on the path. Uh, but he kept talking about, even in this weather, uh, you can get hypothermia and you can die. And so he kept talking. I can't tell you all that he said happens with people when they die in private, I can tell you. Uh, but... Uh, he says if people are they're found even in this kind of weather, they can be found dead because of hyperthermia. And so my kids, we kept pushing them on, but Mike and I turned around and came back. Uh, uh, but there is that challenge. And so there's a challenge to actually trust God. And that challenge is enormous. Childlike surrender in trust 
is a defining quality of authentic discipleship. It is a defining quality of authentic discipleship. The beauty of a human heart which trusts that it is loved gives God more pleasure than anything we can imagine. If we begin to believe that the chief end of man and the end, the focus of our lives is to find our satisfaction in God, to enjoy Him forever. We need to understand that in, if we learn to trust God in the midst of everywhere that we are, it becomes a defining quality of what authentic discipleship is. The beauty of a human heart which trusts that it is love gives more pleasure to God than anything. For many of us, faith becomes a mindless assent to doctrinal beliefs. But the essence of biblical faith lies in trusting God. I heard one writer say, the first is a matter of the head. The second is a matter of the heart. The first can leave us unchanged. The second will not leave us the same. You think about it, if our faith is, is merely just a, a belief in a set of doctrinal beliefs, that is a matter of the head, right? But as we're walking through life and we're experiencing the good and the bad in the midst of it, when we come to the place of learning trust, that we trust God, we trust in Him, even if it doesn't make sense, that is a movement in the heart. So what does this trust begin to look like? I think there are at least three things that, that uh, are true and of course many more. But the first one is that it is an uncompromising compromising trust in the love of God. This kind of trust that God is describing here that he calls Israel, Israel to in this psalm and calls us to. It is an uncompromising trust in the love of God. And I'd like to add it is this idea that it is a supreme need in most of our lives. And often it is the most overlooked thing in our lives to namely understand that the need of uncompromising trust in our love of God. There are times, and I've got to put my glasses on. Ah, I can see now. There are times when it's good to go to God. That is like uh, this idea that uh, we're beggars and we're broken and we come to God recognizing that brokenness, right? There are those times that it is beautiful and is necessary. Those times where we are under deep conviction over our sin and our brokenness and we come to God and it's a beautiful thing. We come, God, I, I have messed up. I've broken your heart. I've, my life is broken and I need you. And so we come to him as a beggar in rags and, and we experience his mercy and it's a powerful, a powerful thing. But I think it, it can be even a more superior and beautiful thing when we approach God as a little child approaches his father, his daddy, his papa. In Luke, there, there are some beautiful stories and pictures of this. In Luke 12, verses 6 and 7, where God just begins to define and describe how much he loves us. In verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
And then down in verse 22, and this is familiar to some of you, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory will not was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows what you need them, that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, the basic premise of this biblical trust is this conviction that God loves us. And this is such a beautiful picture. You know, when you think of the lilies in the field and how God cares for them, and you, you think about the birds of the air, Jesus said, yet he takes care of them. But there's so much we tend to worry about because we forget how much God loves us. And so when you think about the trust that God longs for us to live, it is an uncompromising trust in the love of God. There's a second thing I think we see here. And that it is an unwavering trust that does not require clarity, but demands courage. To live a life of trust, to live the life that God longs for us to live in Him, does not demand demand clarity. We do not always know or understand all that is happening in our life. It doesn't demand that. But trusting God demands courage. It is a rare and precious thing to trust God like that. And it demands a degree of courage that often borders on this idea of heroic. When we are following God, he often calls us to those things that are beyond us. That we know we can't do it on our own. But we trust him. Where he puts us in the place where, humanly speaking, there is no hope. But we find hope because we trust in him. I was reading a book that that told the story of an ethicist named uh, John Kavanaugh. And uh, there was a point in his life where he was longing to to know how he wanted to spend the rest of his life. He'd experienced success, and yet he knew there was more. And so he decided to go to Calcutta to be and work in the house of the dying, where Mother Teresa founded and where she worked. And so the first morning he was there, Mother Teresa saw him and asked him, what can I do for you? And Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. And she said, what do you want me to pray for? Pray, pray about. And he said, pray that I have clarity. And she said to him firmly, I will not pray for that. Clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented to her, he said, man, you seem to always have clarity. She laughed and she said, I have never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. 
So I will pray that you trust God. See, when we crave clarity, always having to have the answers, always being clear on where we're going, what we need to know, what we're doing, it eliminates the risk of really needing to trust God. Fear of the unknown past stretching ahead of us destroys that childlike trust in the Father's active goodness and his love for us. Clarity is required when we have all these self-made props in our life. And that's what we often do. For our security, for our comfort, for our peace, we often set up these props in our lives. And so those props can be other people. And and so we depend on people and we look to people. And all of us do this. And so that when all of our relationships are right and we feel secure, we feel that things are good. And we look to people to meet those needs and, and we depend on that. Sometimes it's money. And money becomes a prop. And if we have lots of money, everything seems great. We're at peace. Or it could be our jobs. It could be our schooling. It could be our success. It could be all sorts of things that we look to. Power, control. But in following Jesus, we're asked often to let go of all these self-made props and trust that God is enough in our lives. And the choice that we begin to, we have to come to is to trust that God, He is enough. He is trustworthy. He is in love with me. He cares about me. I'm going to look to Him because He has got a plan. He's at work and I'm going to follow Him. So the heart, trusting heart comes to God and says, I trust you, I follow you, I surrender my will and my life to you without any reservation and with boundless confidence that you are faithful, that you are present. See, this kind of trust is an unwavering trust that does not require clarity, but it demands courage. And then thirdly, it is a purified trust that is acquired through difficulty. What I am convinced of and what I've experienced in my own life is that this kind of trust is not something that we just decide we're going to have in our minds and our hearts. But it is experienced over a lifetime. And experienced over time and often a long time. Just like the idea of pilgrimage is this long journey to this destination. You know, we aren't instantly at that place where we find our satisfaction in God, right? We are not instantly at that place that we can trust God in any circumstance. What we do is we learn over time. And we begin to have history with the Lord and we begin to look back and we experience, man, he was faithful then, he's going to be faithful now. And so over time we begin to learn that we can trust in him. See, a purified trust, it is purified. It comes through trials. It comes through difficulties. And there's so many psalms that speak of this. Just listen to a few of these. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 18, 19, He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Because he delighted in me. He rescued me. Psalm 13, 5. 
but I've trusted in your steadfast love, my heart to rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 44, blessed is a man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Psalm 52, 8 and 9, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. See, God has chosen to use difficulty and hardship and challenge to develop within us the character in the heart to trust him. And kind of one of those litmus tests uh, that we have this kind of quality of trust and discipleship is gratefulness. That over time as we begin to see God's faithfulness, his love, we begin to learn to trust him in the midst of everything. We can learn to be grateful. See, gratefulness and gratitude arises from the perception and the reality, the evaluation and acceptance of all of life as grace. That whether it's easy or life is hard, God is good. The fact that we are alive and we're living and he has a purpose in the midst of all this, we can be grateful. See, purified trust in the love of God enables us to thank God for whatever we're going through. So as you think about your life, I don't know what you're going through right now. But part of what God longs for you to do is learn to trust him in the midst of it. Some of you are in spiritual darkness right now. That literally is involved. You've got tons of questions and you might be struggling. What does it look like to trust God in the midst of this? Theologians call this sometimes the dark night of the soul. There are seasons in our spiritual journey where there are more questions than answers. And the things that we once believed, we might be questioning. God says, I want you to trust me in the midst of that. Maybe for you, you've lost a job or you've lost income and you're going, God, what is going to happen? Purified trust in the love of God can enable us to be grateful. As we get older and our bones start hurting, arthritis and we're aching, it's easy to be frustrated. What does it mean to trust in God? For you parents, maybe with grown children, your heart is broken because of what they're going through or choices they've made. What does it look like in the midst of that to trust God? Some of you are in school and you're wondering, man, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Or in the midst of broken relationships and broken hearts. As we're on this pilgrimage, God is purifying our faith. He's purifying our trust in Him. Or maybe for some of you, you are in the midst of this self-condemnation. And as you look at your life, you're wallowing in shame and remorse and self-hatred and guilt because of the choices you've made. The failings that you've had may be reality or imagined, but you are in this place of just guilt. And this is really a betrayal of the trust 
in the love of God that he longs for you to have. Accept forgiveness and let your personal condemnation be turned to gratefulness for the grace and mercy of Jesus. See, the way of trust, it's, it's a walk often into obscurity. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk of believing that God is at work. And he's going to show us his way and his purposes. Henry Nouwen uh, once said this. He said, one of the most arduous spiritual tasks is that of giving up control and allowing the Spirit of God to lead our lives. One of the most arduous spiritual tasks is that of giving up control and allowing the Spirit of God to lead our lives. See, deciding what I most need out of life and carefully calculating the next move often puts God in a place of maybe mainly being on the sidelines instead of in the midst of leading us and being a part of what he longs for us to be and do. So this morning, uh, recognizing that God knows, he knows where you are, he knows what he is doing, What are those places that you need to trust him? Where is it that you need to look to him and say, Jesus, I give you this and I follow you? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. I want to read that psalm once again. And as we close, um, I want to give you the opportunity to, to give those places of your life to him and trust. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever more would you pray this with me father into your hand I entrust my body my mind and my spirit and this entire day morning afternoon evening and night Whatever you want of me, I want of me. Falling into your trusting, 
in you in the midst of my life. Into your heart I entrust my heart, feeble, distracted, insecure, uncertain. Father, unto you I abandon myself. Father, that is my prayer for my brothers and sisters here today, for my life, God. That we'd fall into your arms, that we would trust you, that we would look to you, that we'd give you every part of who we are. And we live with the realization of how much you love us and how much pleasure you find when we're able to trust in you. We pray this in your name. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.